Hi listeners, Jason here. We are excited to finally announce registrations for the biggest psych health and safety community event ever. The inaugural The Psych Health and Safety Conference will be held at the Sofitel Wentworth, Sydney, June 19 to 20, 2024, and offer concurrent virtual attendance. It'll feature live podcast recordings with OG researchers, including Christina Maslak and Michael Leiter of Burnout fame, Psych Health and Safety USA podcast host, I, David Daniels, Australian super experts, including the likes of David Burrows, a special 10-year anniversary integrated approaches to workplace mental health panel with authors Tony LaMontagna, Angela Martin and Kat Page, hand-picked case studies from organisations doing it well, and a very special interview with plaintiff Zaggy Kozarov by Catherine Donlop on that High Court case which we previously covered on the podcast. This event will sell out. Get in quick to secure tickets at early bird prices for the two-day conference, pre-conference masterclasses and the VIP dinner. The first 200 in-person registrations also get a copy of her latest book, The Burnout Challenge, signed by Christina Maslach herself. Find out more and register at www.psychhealthandsafetyconference.com. Now, on to this episode. From Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a safety prerogative, this is the source of information on psychological injury prevention and health promotion. Hi, and welcome to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. My name is Jason Benchy, and I'm one of the hosts of the show. The aim in the podcast is to rapidly increase the knowledge and application of psychological health and safety in workplaces worldwide. To help with this, we usually have regular guests from around the world who are leading the way in this important area, but today is another expert series episode. This will be our last new episode for the 2023 year before we go on a five-week hiatus. We'll be taking a much-needed break before returning with our first new episode for 2024 on January 16th. So we thought it would be a good opportunity to take stock of what we have learned in the past year and conjecture about what we can expect for 2024 in Australia and internationally. With me to talk through this, I have my regular co-host and Flourish DX Global Head of Psychological Health and Safety, Joel Mitchell. How today, Joel? I'm uh, limping towards the Christmas break. I think <laughs> you and me both. I, I'd say I'm actually yeah. commend, a commando crawling. I think I've commented to people it's been a it's been a big year. That's for sure. It has been. Um, it's been intense. Yeah, um, and uh, yeah, obviously conferences, travel, um, all the rest on top of the, the usual workload uh, is, is pretty demanding and, uh, and I think at this time of the year everyone's starting to wind down and, and we're very happy to be uh, almost about to start winding down ourselves, which would be nice. Yeah, I'm uh, not thinking about winding down yet. <laughs> what are you talking about? You've been doing a four-day week for the – you've been uh, first experimental guinea pig for uh, – uh, for the last for the four weeks, day work you? week, yeah, um, that's that's been a, uh, a fatigue management strategy, Jason, <laughs> to uh, to help me survive until uh, my my leave over the Christmas break. Yeah, not completely burn out before you uh, hit Christmas. That's it. That's it. Yeah, so that I can you know actually come back after Christmas instead of uh, being exhausted. Yeah, and not be exhausted over your Christmas break either, right? So that's we, it. We, we nobody, say that, uh, right? yeah, yeah, nobody wants to spend their. Mm hard-earned holiday time uh, being unwell. Yeah, I'd much prefer to be laying by a pool somewhere with a constant buzz for two weeks straight. (laughs) (laughs) Much better. So the only difference really there is that you're by the pool instead of at your desk? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Well, it's 10am somewhere, right? So... (laughs) (laughs) So Um, um, so how, how are you, Jason? Yeah, like I said, a little bit probably more tired than, than normal. Um, I did have a three-hour delay thanks to um, uh, an airline that will remain unnamed um, last night. Um, they uh, So, yeah, I got in about 11 o'clock. I was at the World Congress the last few days and um, it wasn't just the late night last night but it was a lot of socialising uh, at the event as well that, um, you know, usually went w- right into the wee hours. Um, those people like Dave Proven, Aaron Barrett, uh, Andrew Barrett, they can... They can uh, <laughs> I don't know how they do it. I don't I seriously do not know how they have the energy. Um, I need my sleep, but I was, I was happy to stay on Perth time while I was over there, given it was only a three day uh, trip. Mm. So um, what were your highlights from the Congress, the days that you were there? Yeah. So um, that I, I think overall the structure of the program was, was really good in that 
they didn't just put in too much content. Um, so, you know, you go to uh, conferences sometimes, just session after session, then you have like maybe a 15-minute break. Yeah, and there's like five concurrent sessions running at the same time or whatever. Yeah, so this, because it is a World Congress, they did have plenty of concurrent sessions and you really had to pick and choose which ones you're, you're going to. Um, the But they did have like the first day between the two workshops, I think it was a two or three-hour break uh, in mm. between. Uh, and given it was day one in particular, right, there was obviously going to be lots of chances to run into people for the first time that you might not have seen in a while. So um, the the conference did a really good job of um, giving people opportunity to connect, given that that was definitely my, um, you know, the, the thing I wanted to do. <laughs> I, I like to think we're a bit on the cutting edge when it comes to psychological health and safety here and providing people with the best information uh, on this. Um, so I didn't expect to learn too much and um, uh, in this space, even though there was a lot of content on there. Um, and I, in the end, I didn't get to as many sessions as uh, I might, might have liked to have done because yeah, I was, I guess, busy catching up with people. But that was my mm. primary objective, so I was, I was happy. So thanks, Sky, uh, <laughs> for for creating the opportunity for so many uh, people to come together and and to be able to connect. Yeah, good. And that, um, well, uh, yeah, when when Sky and Andrew were um, on our podcast a few weeks ago, that was one of the uh, their. Uh, objectives really for the congress wasn't it to give people that opportunity to to do that networking and uh and, and catch up with colleagues that they might not have seen for quite some time yeah that's right um and there was you know plenty of good social events where you know people who maybe didn't have an extensive network or had traveled from international and didn't know anyone locally plenty of opportunities for them to to catch up in um, different networking things uh, obviously, we've got a really great community that, that we've built. So um, it was quite nice walking around and people going, hey, Jason, I, I know the face, but we've never actually chatted. So uh, it was awesome to be able to see so many people and, and to have that first face-to-face connection. Um, but also really enjoyed, um, you know, there were some side events. So David Proven and Safety Exchange, uh, we host their psych health and safety content uh, on their platform. So it was great to, to do something with them. Uh, interestingly uh, and coincidentally, uh, Rebecca McCulloch, who's a friend of the podcast, had also put on a, um, a networking thing, which is at the same pub as the Safety Exchange one. So I got to go to both, which was fantastic. Uh, ended up being a long uh, afternoon and evening. Such a social butterfly you are. I know. But then uh, Two we dates also, at the same time. I know, right? It was great. Uh, Beck was completely, I, I'd forgotten to tell her that, you know, there, was, there might be this other event, you know, uh, kicking off <laughs> at any point. Uh, but that was quite fun. So we just kind of like all kind of uh, continued on with, with that group. Um, and then the Tuesday night was great because we wanted to get some um, customers and friends together uh, for a nice dinner. So we went to the Star uh, and had a nice restaurant with uh, a nice uh, restaurant meal with about 20 of us. Uh, which was um, which is really nice to sit down and um, just have a great social event. Pull together some people who are like-minded, um, uh, pretty senior people with um, you know who, who are trying to do stuff in this area and just get them talking, give them that opportunity. So um, yeah, that, that that was some of my highlights. But it was it was all around the socialising, funnily enough, um, and you know connecting with people that you know you don't get to see all in one place too often. Mm. Mm. Good. So. Joelle, uh, as we, we mentioned at the top, it's been a big year. Uh, and in fact, this is actually the end of our third year of podcasting together. Can you believe mm, it? I can. Yeah, I've well, got to say. <laughs> thinking, I've th- thinking about how I, well, my expectations when we first started, no, I wouldn't have expected that it would, that we would still be going with it now. Yeah, now I'm obviously an, an optimist, and uh, you know I am someone who always looks to the future. So yeah, of course I thought we'd be doing this forever. Um, I, I did, uh, as I often do, have um, our first podcast episode, the clips from that. That's kind of high up on mm-hmm. my LinkedIn profile, um, and I look. I was like, Joel looks so much younger there. Um, I really, <laughs> really worked you hard the last three years, Joel. I think. <laughs> Uh, putting you putting up with me for three years, I should say, probably is. Uh... <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but like you said, you didn't know what to expect with the podcast. You didn't know what to expect working with me. That's um, true. That's yeah, true. yeah. But uh, I think I, I think listen. Probably get... it's probably not all you, Jason. It could be just also time, right? Yeah, actually, someone uh, commented me when we were there. He's actually just started listening to the podcast from the very beginning, um, and he's like, "Poor Joel, she just got so many." <laughs> That was a rough time. <laughs> <laughs> All 
all the construction issues and water and yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. All the rest. I'm like, well, look, we, we did move on from that. We did try and be a little bit more lighthearted at the, in our intros. So uh, <laughs> it does get better. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah but it's, it's been a lot of fun, right? And, and uh, many people have commented to me that they like, um, I guess, how we play off each other. Uh, you're definitely the one that keeps me in line. Um, and I think they appreciate you keeping me in line. Someone so has to. Good Lord. Yeah, you would get cancelled. <laughs> yep. Uh, I think we can both agree on that one. Mm. Um, so let's uh, let's think about then, like, because we've been doing this for three years now, um, mm. but this last year has been really incredible, I guess, with the changes that we've seen. Um, we've seen some uh, new exciting things happen in the past year. We've seen some same old challenges um, rear their heads again. Um, and we've got some, you know, oppor- some real opportunities I think we've identified for companies who are, you know, continuing to move their strategies forward in the psych health and safety space. Uh, so I guess um, we'll start with the, we've got six things here in particular, I guess we want to talk through. Um, but the first one is that regulations are actually working to get organisations moving at a rate and in the right direction um, that we have not seen for the last two or three decades. Yeah, and it's an interesting one, right, because on the one hand we get people sort of telling us that their board and exec aren't really bothered about um, enforcement or um, about like fines and prosecution and that sort of thing because the if you look at the penalty provisions and the types of fines that they actually could get through prosecution, um, it, it's sort of insignificant for them. Um, yet at the same time, we're seeing those companies still moving in response to the the regulations. So it's an interesting one. Um, I guess there's an element of um, reputation that comes along with that. Um, and probably a little bit of peer pressure from, um, you know, their, their competitors in the industry as well. Um, I know with a lot of organisations, they're always keen to be sort of seen to be the first one to do something or to be leading the way. And especially in, um, in the area of health and safety, um, there does seem to be always this competition to be sort of the leader, um, to be, um, yeah, out ahead of everybody else. Um, so there's maybe some of that driving it as well. Um, so, yeah, it's it's been interesting. Um, I think a lot of it is, you know, organisations who have known for a long time that this is something that they should be doing because they see uh, or they understand what the benefits or the, the potential benefits are to their business um, and perhaps what the regulations have done has given them just that little bit more weight to the argument that's tipped it over into this is something that we have to do now as opposed to, oh, we need to prioritise something else. Yeah. Yeah, so as you say, um, you know, we have heard anecdotally that, you know, if you're a billion-dollar company, getting a max fine even of half less than half a million dollars um, is probably not going to be enough uh, to influence behaviour change, um, when, particularly when you look at the cost of compliance potentially in, in comparison to the, the fine. Um, but like you say, the peer pressure and, and wanting to to demonstrate that they are actually running a a, a good business uh, is important. Um, I did run into Jim Kelly and Ian Firth at the uh, World Congress, and um, Jim and Ian had both been on our podcast previously, and I'd, I'd commented that even with the code of practice that had come out earlier, and there'd been guidelines from Safe Work Australia out since, what, 2018 or, or what have you, um, that it wasn't until the regulations hit that we actually saw a huge influx of activity. Uh, I mean, I think back a year ago when we were maybe having one conversation with a new company that was interested in us supporting them maybe once every fortnight or so, uh, mm. and now it feels like we're having three to five conversations with new companies every single day. Um, so the the level of activity has definitely gone up through the roof Uh and nothing historically has actually made that change as much as what we're seeing right now. Mm. Yeah. Um, so the other thing that's probably prompting uh, companies is uh, improvement notices. So the regulators are becoming more active. Uh, I believe Libby Brook, friend of ours again, um, is in, in Victoria, is leading the charge in terms of size of team. Um, I, uh, I believe she's up to about 30 people 
who have more of a focus on psychosocial um, in in uh, their inspection activities. So, um, you know, we are seeing the regulators arm up, but Victoria are definitely leading the charge in terms of the, the capacity of, of their team to actually enforce um, the, let's, let's face it, like existing obligations because they don't have new regulations yet, but existing obligations and, and they seem to be the ones that are, that are probably doing the most activity in this space. Yeah, and I think that that's probably an important thing to distinguish as well is the difference between an improvement notice and a, a prosecution or an infringement notice um, in that um, for the majority of regulators around Australia, uh, their improvement notices aren't published, so we're not actually uh, privy to how much um, regulatory action is actually being taken in this space um, because they sit sort of below that um, that threshold for publishing. Uh, so, yeah, I think that that probably is also a significant driver for a lot of organisations and a lot of the time an improvement notice can actually be much more um, costly than a, than a fine um, or an infringement as well. And if we look at um, the... There was a New South Wales enforceable undertaking published um, and that was in excess of $2 million, the estimated costs of that undertaking. Um, and that's, you know, absent of, of prosecution or, or infringement. That's um, basically the PCBU agreeing to that um, instead of being prosecuted. Uh, so, yeah, the um, notices are a very powerful instrument that, that regulators can use um, and in, in my experience, they're generally a lot more um, effective and efficient in actually bringing organisations to um, a safer state than, than something like prosecution is. Yeah, and I, and I don't think um, the health and safety people that we interact with um, on the regular uh, are upset when they get the improvement notice because often they've been banging the drum for a while going, what we're doing is not sufficient and maybe senior leadership don't agree. And then they get the notice of improvement and then go, see, we have to do something in this space. You don't have a choice now, right? Yeah. They might not be uh, super happy to have the improvement notice. I'm sure that it uh, probably doesn't uh, do wonders for their uh, their own um, performance objectives for the year. Um, but, well, yeah, that, that it's is, certainly... Yeah, yeah this, this it, is a problem though, right? Like if you get it and um, then you have to respond to it immediately that's going to increase your own workload because uh, you still have everything else. So obviously much better to, to put it in as a planned kind of strategic uh, approach versus having to jump and, and do something maybe half-heartedly just to uh, to meet the, the requirements of the improvement. Yeah. Yeah, but um, we are definitely, uh, when having first calls with, with prospective clients, um, often, you know, we'll ask them, so why now? Like this is something that's been around for a while now. Why, why now? And they're like, oh. Might have gotten visited by the regulator this week. <laughs> We're yeah. expecting expecting something. So um, yeah, it's it's interesting, right? We've been talking about the carrot versus the stick for some time, um, and we've been using a lot of carrots historically. Uh, but the stick works, and I know people like Martin Shane in Canada are really going, "Hey, look at Australia! Look how like much activity this is actually driving." Yes, we have a voluntary standard, which you know back in twenty thirteen was really ahead of its time internationally. Um, but companies still are not adopting this in the same at the same rate um, as what is happening in Australia, thanks to the the regulatory changes. So um, it's really amazing to be witnessing this very much firsthand. Um, how organisations are just deciding that they they do finally need to move really quickly, and it's mm. not the carrot; it's the, it's the stick, right? Because the carrots are still there; they, they remain the same as what they were a decade ago. Yeah. Yeah, and like I say, I think that it, it's not that the carrots aren't um, attractive, but it's that I think the combination of those carrots plus that stick is really just what's nudging organisations over the edge. Yeah, so watch this space if you're uh, international um, and you're maybe jealous of how much activity is happening in Australia. Um, I believe um, that this will be a good case study uh, of what's happening as, as a country. Um, and I can definitely see other countries following suit, um, pointing to the experience that we're going through right now. Um, I guess the, the second thing I wanted to talk about is that concept confusion still abounds, um, particularly when talking about things like psychological safety versus psychological health and safety. 
Uh, and those that listen to the podcast regularly will know, I, know I'll always get a twitch. Um, and I so much, <laughs> so often get tagged on posts when people are conflating the two. Um, and so I probably see it more than what I should. Um, <laughs> are you going to like shout out and ask people to stop tagging you in those because yeah, it's raising your blood pressure? <laughs> yeah, it would. I'd be a lot more relaxed and chill. I'm, I mean, I'm pretty chill anyway, right? But um, I'd be even more chill if I didn't have to see that stuff all the time. You'd be asleep. um but yeah there's obviously a lot of people trying to get their head around this space and there's people who followed amy edmondson's work and uh tim clark and and these kinds of people and there there might be um, more from a a well-being or hr or people in culture type background and not really have been exposed to health and safety legislation or human factors before and then they think they get it they're like oh yeah i know all about psychological safety um, but we're seeing that, yeah, people are conflating the two quite often and in some cases giving very bad advice to, to clients based on um, a limited understanding of what's actually required. Yeah, and what I think that the particular concern there is that when there are service providers who are putting themselves forward as subject matter experts but they're making those really basic mistakes um, and actually even, you know, we see that in in marketing material um, where there is just that absolute conflation of the two uh, the terms are used interchangeably um, and the, the the concepts are used interchangeably as well so they don't even that they're sort of using the terms to describe one thing they're actually just they're just very confused about the whole thing and they're not um, like it, it's fine to do both I think if that's if that's what you want to do but you need to be clear what what those two things are, how they're different from each other, and, and yes, yeah, certainly how they do interact. Um, but yeah, just mashing them all together isn't isn't the way to do it. Yeah, and I, I'm sick of people saying, "Oh, but you need psychological health and safety to be able to do psychosocial risk management." And I'm like, "Do you really know what psychological safety is?" Um, and I'm going to, I'm probably going to be that annoyed, Joelle, from this discussion right now that I'm probably going to do another post on this on Friday. Um, Sandra Lamb did a post actually about something similar last night and I was on the plane on the way home and I had to respond. Um, and I was like, all right, well, this is how Amy Edmondson uh, conceptualizes psychological safety. If you look at the measure, the seven items in her measure to measure psychological safety, one of them is about people's willingness to, to raise up, uh, concerns or, you know, um, be willing to raise up negative things basically. Mm. Um, but often people will say psychological safety is about, you know, raising concerns or like if there's a safety uh, issue, you'd be willing to raise it. That's like one-seventh of what psychological safety is actually all about. Um, so I think more people are probably talking about employee safety voice, uh, which is all around how willing um, uh, employees to raise safety-related matters at work um, <laughs> rather than you know, psychological safety, which is just such a broad construct. And as yeah. David Burris has pointed out before, it's kind of like Maslow's uh, hammer in that it's like we can use this for everything and it's because it's such a broad construct, right? It's like people can apply it to pretty much anything. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think I'm going to do a post uh, probably on Friday this week um, of this is how you measure psychological safety, this is how you measure employee safety voice. What is it that you're actually talking about? What behaviours are you trying to drive? And then maybe, you know, employee safety voices where you should be focusing your attention and the wealth of research in that area versus something like psychological safety, which is a very mm. broad brush approach to try and get the, the the outcome that you want. All right. So, listeners, you'll be able to tell if Jason has published that post or not because that will be in yeah, advance actually, of this oh, episode actually, going live. Oh, it's actually Thursday. No, I can't be asked. Um, it'll, be, it'll be next week. Yeah, that would be tomorrow. Yeah, yeah so no, no, not tomorrow? No, no not tomorrow. No, no, no. I was thinking it was Wednesday. I'm just all turned around. Uh, it will not, but it will probably be maybe after this, this episode. After this episode airs this then. Episode so there Tuesday. you go, listeners. Keep your eyes peeled for that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so moving on to number three, um, we're seeing that despite our best efforts of trying to educate the market through the podcast, through the webinars that we do, through our professional practice program, that there's a growing understanding that companies need specialist support for psychological health and safety. Um, so I guess what we've been trying to do is particularly for generalist health and safety practitioners to kind of broaden their understanding um, and maybe, 
you know, increase their capability a bit more in this space. Um, but we're still seeing that it probably, like a lot of hygiene or human factors areas, right, probably will require ongoing specialists uh, in this area. Yeah, and look, I think that that's sort of part of the role of the generalist as well is to recognise when they need to call in a specialist for assistance. Um, and I think like what we're seeing in terms of demand for that specialist support is very much in getting started and getting getting things established, right, getting the systems of work in place, um, helping the organisation to work out how do we do this. Um, and, you know, obviously our goal is that we help them through that process and then they can kind of be um, independent of us and, and carry that on without us. Um, but, yeah, I think that... that there is an important aspect of that to build in, well, when do you need help, um, as, as there is with any other um, any other safety issue. Yeah, so we are seeing uh, in Australia um, there is a growing number of jobs being advertised uh, quite mm. frequently now, and, in fact, that's why on our, our mailing list now, um, you know, we have our jobs board um, that goes out fortnightly with, um, you know, some of the, the, uh, the jobs that we think are quite interesting in this space. Um, I'd say... Most companies don't need a full-time person in this area once they're set up, as you're saying. Um, yeah. Once you understand your gaps, once you've got your strategy on how you're going to meet compliance and have a safe system of work, once you've got your consultation methods and how you're going to be monitoring your hazards and, and controls, um, it's something that probably can be done with relatively little input. Um, and so we're finding, you know, some of our um, subscription, software subscription um deals that we have or, or combinations that we have where we put on a layer of customer support, um, you know, that 20, 30 days a year of consulting support it, as needed is probably plenty rather than having someone on the books, you know, for, for the whole year. Um, obviously, if you're in a very large organisation, we've got some clients, for example, that have, you know, five to 10,000 plus employees. Yeah, you know, maybe that would be a large enough scale to have a dedicated resource in this area. Uh, but if you're not operating in that sort of scale, then you probably don't need um, a dedicated resource. Yeah, it's I guess size and complexity and hazard profile. I suppose it's sort of the things that you'd want to think about there, as in in terms of whether you'd need a full time position for that or not. Yeah. Um, so we we are still trying, right? So we will continue to do podcasts. We'll continue to do webinars. We'll um, continue to run our professional practice program. Um, but yeah, I think uh, we and we did a podcast on this about a year or so ago now, right? It was called Apps Don't Fix Workplace Mental Health. Mm. Uh, we actually realised that the way we engage with companies needed to change back then. Uh, whereas before, we were just saying, well, if we build the tools to help companies to consult with staff better and to 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 uh, address risks and, and manage those risks through a software platform, that would be enough. And then we realised, no, companies still need a lot of handholding to set up their systems and. Yeah, and to continue that they remain on track um, with with their safe system of work. Um, so yeah, that's something that we've just you know doubled down on. It was great to have Andrew and Heather join the team in the last few months, and uh, mm. I dare say we've probably got another couple of sites who'll be joining the team in the first quarter of next year as well, given the uh, the demand in this area. Yes, it's exciting times to be us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you, Joel, you've got a you're growing team, and you know everyone yeah. that we we employ are people who actually know what they're doing before they hit the hit the ground. So we, I guess, we don't have the luxury at, at this stage yet at our scale to uh, you know to have um, graduates uh, in in the role uh, mm -hmm. as much as I know you and Heather um, are, are really interested in growing the profession. Um, and to be, I know you both actively supervise um, people who are going through their masters programs in organisational psychology. Um, I guess we don't have the um, yeah that flexibility to have that level role in yet. Yeah, and I yeah. think that that's that's also about recognizing and being realistic about the level of support that a graduate needs to be able to get to a point where they can do the job really well. Um, and just yeah, being quite honest that we're not we don't have the capacity to to be able to provide that level of support at this stage. Yeah. So graduates, if you are interested in going into the field, we're happy to talk. <laughs> we just probably don't have any roles for you um, just yet. Um, but we are, um, yeah, that's something I'm looking forward to in 2024, um, you know, growing the team. And I'm sure there's plenty of people in our network that we already know and maybe have even spoken about on the podcast previously that will hopefully be joining the team over the coming year. And, um, 
you know, supporting our clients, which would be great. Um, okay, so let's talk about number four then, which is when we do have early conversations with companies, some of the objections that are still coming up. Um, so these are very much part of the course. Um, if you ever get on a call with me where you're asking for support for your own organisation, um, you do not need to apologise for any of these things because <laughs> pretty much every conversation, um, these things come up with a new company, right? Uh, so one is around the good old survey fatigue. Um, we do not want to do a risk assessment because we do enough surveys. Um, no one wants another survey. Um, like we can, we do not have capacity to, to uh, do any further consultation. So um, we are not going to do a risk assessment. We just want to, you know, but we, we do want to say we've done a risk assessment. <laughs> <laughs> how, how do you how do you deal with that? Given that obviously under the Workplace Health and Safety Act, so this is something that maybe. HR and people and culture people are not as familiar with, but when you work in health and safety, there is legislation that governs how you must go about certain activities. And under the Workplace Health and Safety Act, there is a duty to consult. So how do you get around this whole idea of um, particularly HR and people and culture, which usually own the engagement and culture survey saying we've got survey fatigue, there's no capacity to run any more surveys, but the health and safety practitioner knowing they've got a duty to consult workers around psychosocial hazards. Yeah, so um, like it obviously it varies uh, between organisations in, in terms of what what works um, and it's generally about exploring a little bit more first, um, you know, what is what are the items on your engagement survey or that those other um, data points that you collect and actually exploring those um, and then looking at, well, what do these actually provide in terms of what the regs require and then where are the gaps? Um, and most of that is going to, well, firstly, you're probably not actually asking people about all of your reasonably foreseeable hazards in your engagement survey. Um, pretty unlikely that that's going to be the case. Um, secondly, you're certainly not asking them about exposure, um, which is really what leads you to be able to talk about risk. Uh, so, you know, what the regulations ask for isn't just whether something is there or not, but how severe is its impact on on your workforce? How often are people exposed and for how long? Um, so that, you know, it's, I think sometimes giving that clarification can be enough to help um, stakeholders see why their engagement survey isn't, uh, isn't going to do the job. Um, but that wasn't what you asked me, was it? You were asking me about survey fatigue. Yeah, but I guess we can kind of mash them two together, right? Because that kind they, of is the do. solution, right? Yeah, it's like we've got survey fatigue. We're just going to use the engagement survey, right? Because we've already yeah, and it's I guess you know well, firstly, why why do you have fatigue, and where does that come from? Um, you know, if people are fatigued, that suggests that you're over surveying them, and they're not seeing value, um, or they're they're not seeing that there's a, a useful or a beneficial trade off for them, right? You're asking them to take some of their time and redistribute it to completing this survey, giving you information um, about their views on things. If they don't see any useful change or action or acknowledgement even um, coming out of that, um, then they're less motivated to participate in future consultation. So, um, Jason, you say this fairly often, survey fatigue is really... Um, learned helplessness. Hi listeners, Jason here. We hope you're enjoying this latest podcast episode. Now, if you're like Joelle, Alicia and myself and enjoy learning from the best, then the Flourish DX Academy is for you. The Academy includes free e-learning courses on the ISO 45003 standard for psychological health and safety at work and associated topics such as how to conduct a psychosocial risk assessment and how to create the business case for psych health and safety. All courses feature high-quality videos, downloadable resources, multi-choice questions, and a downloadable training certificate on completion. Take your learning to the next level with all Flourish DX Academy courses included within the Flourish DX mobile app. Select podcast episodes from the Psych Health and Safety podcast, and sister podcasts from Canada and the USA are also included. Get started with Flourish DX for free at www.flourishdx.com forward slash get hyphen started. That's www.flourishtx.com forward slash get hyphen started. Now back to this episode. 
Yeah, well, I actually got that from Dave Burrows, right? So, um, and, and there's some other people who have picked up on that, but it's um, usually not survey fatigue; it's lack of action fatigue, um, which is which is the primary driver of, of like people giving that feedback. Um, I'm sick of telling you the same thing and nothing changing about my experience of work. Um, and so, yeah, unfortunately, that is the case because companies um, or, or people have not seen any benefit from previous consultation. So, I guess. This is a whole, like, this is, we could do a whole podcast. And in fact, um, the last webinar that we're going to be running for the year, which is on the 12th of December, is going to be on this exact topic, um, which is, you know, people ask, can we just use our engagement survey as a, as a uh, psychosocial risk assessment? We'll talk about the limitations of that um, and what would be best practice if you're considering going down that route. Um, and, and I can give you one right now, and that is to distance your psychosocial risk assessment activities as far away as you can from your engagement survey, particularly if you're getting survey fatigue kind of feedback, um, because people are then not probably valuing your employee engagement survey process. Um, and you want to make sure that people see this as a different process that's going to drive different sorts of outcomes. Yeah. And that's, um, you know, that's one of the reasons why we're quite um, deliberate in how we um, name our tools that we do actually call it a psychosocial risk assessment um, and not a a hazard survey or, or something or like well-being, that. A well-being, a well-being survey. survey. The, the number yeah. of the number of clients that ask, "Oh, don't like this idea of calling it risk." Can we? It sounds so negative. Can we call it something else? <laughs> like, well, a risk assessment is actually a, a legal responsibility now, so you might as well call it what it is. Um, and then you can actually tell people why it's a mandatory activity for them to participate in. Because as an employee of a PCBU, they are a duty holder. And there is an obligation for them to participate in reasonable health and safety activities. And this would be one of them. Um, again, so distance yourself from this idea of, you know, um, psychosocial risk management being a voluntary wellbeing type initiative. Um, this is very much about understanding what is it that can potentially cause harm about the way we do work. Um, and then what are the things we need to prioritise to make sure that people are not harmed. Which kind of leads us to the next part of this question, right? Well, the thing that we wanted to do is the fear of rattlesnakes. So if we do, don't do a risk assessment, um, Joel, that's great because then we, we don't know about any risks. And, you know, some leaders I think would prefer to live in this, uh, this land where they just don't know any better because they uh, don't ask the question. Um, yeah, so the, I guess the, the full context of that fear of rattlesnakes is, um, you know, people don't want to look under the stone because they're afraid that there's a rattlesnake there. But... The rattlesnake is there whether they look or not. Um, and the same goes for your psychosocial hazards. So, you know, the the legislation doesn't say um, to control risks associated with hazards that you know about. It says control risks associated with reasonably foreseeable hazards. So whether or not you've actually asked your workforce about them doesn't, well, if you haven't asked your workforce about them, that doesn't absolve you of your legal duties. Those duties are still there. And if you don't ask your workforce about them, then you fail to meet your duties. Um, and if something does go wrong and if you do get to a point of um, an inspection or a prosecution, then the fact that you hadn't done that consultation um, is probably going to stand against you. Yeah, and that, that actually has come up um, a number of times now. So there was um, the coroner's court in Victoria uh, that were prosecuted uh, due to a fatality that occurred, which was, uh, I think that was back in 2018. Um, and that was tied back to the person being in a very toxic work environment. Um, so it was definitely work-related suicide. Uh, and one of the things in the prosecution that was uh, reported in the age in Victoria um, that said that they like, they made note of the fact that they had not they had failed to conduct a psychosocial risk assessment over a few years despite the foreseeable hazards uh, in in that work environment that the the young lady was in unfortunately yeah and so you know a lot of those things are captured in other. Um, other sources of organisational data collection as well. So I think you, you can't even really reasonably say that you've got plausible deniability if you don't actually do that risk assessment because you still um, have information about the presence of a lot of those hazards. You just haven't gone um, the, the next step of 
um, of exploring exposure and, and looking at how best to control it. Yeah, and we've got to say the state of knowledge, right, regarding foreseeable hazards is increasing on the daily as well. Mm-hmm. Right? The, the, the information that is being shared um, would definitely make it not hard for pretty much any organisation in any industry with any sorts of roles with a bit of a desktop review um, of industry data, be able to identify what are the key things that you should be aware of um, without it. Oh, and the the codes of practice also say these are your reasonably foreseeable hazards. If you haven't actually gone to the effort of, of doing hazard identification, here they are. Mm. Yeah. And so obviously you, that's not yeah. that's not an exhaustive mm. list, but that yeah. really just eliminates any argument of, oh, we didn't know because mm. that code of practice is there as the legal um, basis for what you are expected to know. Yeah, and we've seen the the regulators probably be most heavy-handed where there are things that um, are foreseeable and probably those high-severity things if they're not controlled. So yeah. frontline workers, for example, being exposed to trauma. Um, actually, one that Sexual was really harassment. Sexual harassment is another one, yeah. There was a, another one that was really interesting that came out this month from um, uh, New Zealand, uh, which, again, don't have the same regulatory drivers in Australia but have a their, their act is very similar to ours, given that they pretty much copy and pasted it. Um, they uh, bas- Basically, the story is, um, and Joel and I had a bit of a giggle about this because it was quite funny how it all eventuated. Um, but what's not funny is that we know that rail operators are unfortunately exposed to fatalities because that's how people sometimes choose to kill themselves walking in front of trains. It happens too regularly. Yeah, there's also... Like cars that think that they can beat the train at the crossing and, and those types of things as well. Yeah. So fatalities happen, right? It is definitely a foreseeable risk, which is a high severity kind of um, psychosocial hazard exposure. Um, low frequency, hopefully, in comparison to other things like, say, workload or lack of autonomy, but, you know, it is um, high severity and needs to be managed. Now, the union flagged with the rail operator that their control of EAP, um, like here's the phone number if you witness a fatality to go talk to someone, that was not a suitable control. And the rec- uh, and the rail operator basically said, hold my beer, we know what a risk control is, EAP is all we need, and we're going to go talk to the regulator about it. And the regulator's like, no, that's not good enough. Here's a notice of improvement. Um, and so, uh, you know, what, what we're seeing is that, you know, you don't need to necessarily have done a staff consultation, uh, identified the rattlesnakes through that, to, to have a duty to make sure that um, risks to employees are managed satisfactorily. Yep. Yeah. Um, so that kind of moves us on to the last part of this, this area, which is another objection, which is around leadership. Um, so senior leaders often are worried if we consult with staff, we're going to identify all of these issues and then we're going to need to take action to address them. And what's the cost of that going to be? And how many resources are going to be required to actually address that? Um, and I guess you'd see that too, right, Joelle? Like, um, you generally come on board after we, we get a client on board. And so generally we've overcome that objection at some point when we've talked to a client and the leadership understand, well, it's not that big an issue. Um, any, any comments on that one, like how this what your experience is, um, I guess, maybe, uh, and is that really true? Um, look, you, 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 there's a wide range of actions that we can look at, right, and some of them probably will end up being big and complex. Um, most of the, certainly the first iteration of this work that we do with clients we don't we're not really seeing those big sort of whole of organization system type changes what we're really seeing is what well firstly these are you know these are the areas the the teams the functions whatever in our organization who are struggling at the moment who are at highest risk so let's prioritize them as a start let's understand what the context is for them what's what's creating this hazard profile for them um and so what are the drivers um and and that might be you know different work streams coming into them um it might be you know issues with that they don't have clear um position descriptions and they don't understand what the boundaries are of their roles uh it might be that 
you know, the way that decisions are made within the team aren't really clear and so it seems like things are unfair or, or confusing. Um, so a lot of these issues when we're talking about it at a team level, they really are, we, we can develop team level um, actions to, to address those issues as well. Um, you know, if we're looking at things like workload, well, what are the sources of work that are coming into the team from the organisation or, or from the client base? And what are some strategies that we can put in place to um, manage that at the source? So, you know, can we change what our delivery um, schedules are? For example, um, you know, how much time we need to turn around a particular piece of work um, or, you know, what are the expectations around quality? Uh, what are the expectations around uh, sort of feedback and, and those types of turnarounds? So there's quite a lot of tweaking that we can do at that level sort of to set expectations around how that work is actually going to be um, processed and, and delivered. And so that's not about hiring more people into the team, but that's actually about saying, well, let's look at the work and let's just do a little bit of thinking about how we can make this more efficient and maybe it's, you know, we don't actually need to be doing all of that stuff potentially is is another, um, another solution as well. Um, so, yeah, when we talk about things like work design, it, we're, we're not necessarily or we're not always talking about big, scary, yeah, sort of whole of organisation change. Um, it can be, you know, some really simple um, or fairly straightforward tweaks that we can make to how things are already running um, to just reduce um, th those pain points within that, within that workflow or, or whatever it might be. Um, and those, you know, those are still work design um, controls because they are actually changing how work is experienced by people. Yeah, and, and I've commented on it before um, on LinkedIn at least where I've said, you know, what people want is they want to see action right as close as possible to the consultation. So if you say, well, the biggest issue we've got is this massive systemic issue, maybe it's like a uh, outdated IT infrastructure system you work in a large government department, right? Hugely complex. It's going to take three years to actually address this thing properly. Um, if you say that's what we're going to commit to, thanks for your feedback, and it takes three years for people's experience of work to change, you're probably going to have 80% turnover in that period of time and people aren't actually going to see any benefit from the consultation. So small, fast actions, um, often focused on busy work, as Joel was saying, more of those hindrance demands. What, what actually adds no value and takes a lot of time? Um, can we either eliminate those things or, or, or improve those processes so that we have to spend less time doing that? Um, that's the number one way to deal with work overload, um, which is the most common thing that we see as a, as, as a, as a hazard that um, is causing people distress uh, at work. So um, that is, yeah, it, it doesn't have to be big, right? Sometimes it's about removing a process. I think I've spoken before around, um, you know, role clarity even, right? Just we found with our marketing team having a 15-minute meeting once a week just to align on what's important, what are the priorities, what's coming up, um, that was enough to actually deal with probably the most, the largest issue that was in that particular part of the organisation. Um, so, yeah, these things don't have to be big and scary um, and really, particularly after your first one, to try and win over people and, and give them motivation to continue in, in, in um, you know, forthcoming uh, risk assessment processes, um, yeah, make it quick and fast and, and, and something that does actually change your experience of work. So, Joelle, um, there, there's some of the objections and those are some of our responses to those, right? Uh, I think it's all really important. And like I said, if you come on and, and you, you, you apologise, you don't need to apologise uh, for any of those things. They're all very common uh, concerns. Um, and they're you know, in large case, it's it's due to ignorance that people still have those concerns. Um, and once we get through uh, and educate, then often they're, they're, they're no longer a concern. And particularly when people just start getting in and doing it, right, then, the, then their concerns can be overcome as well, um, just through their own experience. Um, we, we had one recently, actually, which is quite a large organisation across 200 sites, right? And they were concerned because they'd had some feedback from a small number of employees about some um, issues. But when they got a representative sample across the whole organisation that seemed to be, well, this is just kind of pockets where we've got these issues. It's not a, you know, it's not a widespread issue. 
Um, yeah. But a risk assessment can really identify what pockets they, they exist in and then you can focus your attention on that rather than going, oh, we're going to need to roll something out like across thousands of employees. Mm. Cool. All right. Well, um, what we're now seeing, I guess, in terms of, you know, this now being more commonplace in Australia at least, um, psychosocial risk assessment and, and management of risks, is that many companies have started their strategy and many have chosen to go with, say, a global risk assessment where they, um, you know, they'll not across the whole globe if they're a international uh, organisation, multinational, but they um, are focusing on Australia largely. But if we go across all of our employees in a market, which might be hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands, um, let's understand what is our hazard profile, where does that exist within the organisation? Um, but then they start to realise that they've got a gap in their controls and maybe a gap in how they're monitoring their controls or have maybe have never evaluated it. And, um, you know, this is something we've spoken about before as well, right, Joelle, like what the regulations are asking of organisations is essentially org psych 101, you know, before, um, you know, going forth with a intervention, actually do a diagnosis, go, well, what is the problem, you know, and try and understand what is the root cause, not just the symptoms, like people are burnt out, well, great. Yeah, what's causing them to burn out? Um, and, and how can we address that further upstream? We then put in the intervention and then we measure to see whether the interventions have been effective or not. Um, so many organisations, because of time and cost, um, they'll often skip the first bit, the, um, the, the diagnosis, and then they'll skip the last bit going, oh, if we do this thing, it's evidence-based, it's going to work, so we don't need to worry about measuring it. Uh, but now, I guess through regulation, we're saying, well, now what is good practice is now actually mandatory practice, uh, which is really nice. But I guess... Um, that, that is nice, but I guess the, the other thing to um, acknowledge here is that um, HR and organisational development, um, this is, these are not new fields of work. And um, I guess I can understand how some people working in HR, people in culture, OD, they might get their noses out of joint when health and safety is saying we need to do a risk assessment and we need to control risk. When ultimately the controls sit typically within HR and OD and such, um, and there are really controls that exist, right? Um, so I think it's kind of a disservice to say to HR practitioners to say, well, we've got to start from scratch here. You know, we've got to do a risk assessment. We need to consult with staff. We need to then, you know, develop controls. Whereas, in fact, you know, there has been consultation done, maybe not targeted in the, in the right way like we were talking about before. It's not an exposure assessment, but you definitely, as an organisation, if you run a regular engagement pulse culture survey, you'll know where your hot pockets are and what are some of your key issues in those areas, right? So you'd, you'd understand what a lot of your hazards are. And like Joel and I mentioned earlier, if you look at any industry data, the code of practice, that sort of thing, you'll, you'll, pretty, you'll understand what your hazards are. Then there's heaps of controls. There's lots of stuff that is being done either to do with the design of work through things like what's our recruitment practice, what is our onboarding practice, what is our leadership development practice, what's our reward and recognition program look like, um, what's our performance management program. All of these things, if they're done properly, can actually be protective factors uh, for, for mental health. Um, so there are controls and then there are other controls, right, which are kind of like your generic workplace mental health controls like resilience training, mindfulness, EAP, mental health first aid, peer support, that sort of thing. So there's lots going on, right? So I'm actually thinking many companies might be better off starting at step three of the risk management cycle, which is around um, assessing the effectiveness of controls. Oh, sorry, you put, sorry, it's actually step four, which is um, assessing the effectiveness of controls. Step three, we put in controls, so they're, they're already in. So it's like, let's now go, th and, and before we go through another cycle, let's actually take stock of where we're at. Um, so that might be, okay, let's, we, we've got data to identify hazards. We've got, we, we know what the known risks are, right? So we don't necessarily need to assess them at this point. We've got controls in. Now, let's actually go and map the controls that we've got to the hazards or clusters of hazards, and let's review how likely they are to be effective. And when I say that, it, it might be things like, well, let's review them against the hierarchy of control. And when you do that, and when we do that with our clients, we very often say, hey, you know what? We've got very little, if any, at the elimination or work design phase. What we're really looking at is a lot of policies, training, self-care kind of um, uh, more reactive type things in place often. Um, and so 
just by you know looking at that, looking at things like is it primary, secondary, tertiary, which we find most tend to be tertiary intervention rather than primary or secondary. Um, looking at things like is it uh, reactive versus um, proactive. Um, is it organizational level intervention or is it team specific intervention, noting the different hazard profiles that you might have in the organization? So there's many ways, right? You could actually map the controls that you've got and, and consider are these things likely to be effective or, you know, at what kind of level are these controls? Um, and then that, what, and then the next thing is how are we monitoring these things? How are we monitoring these hazards? How are we monitoring if new hazards are emerging? How are we monitoring the, the controls and how they're being implemented and how effective they are? And when you do that exercise, very quickly, you identify the gaps. Hey, we're missing a lot of controls that should be at the work design level. We're missing a lot of things at the primary prevention level. They're all like secondary or, or tertiary. Um, we have no data points on how we're actually monitoring these controls to, to know whether they're effective or not. Um, and so all of those things point to going back to that first stage of the risk management um, cycle of going, all right, let's go back then and get some data, consult with staff around identifying these hazards, assessing their risk and putting additional controls in place. So regardless of whether you start at step one or step four of the uh, the risk management cycle, you end up back at step one, right? It's continuous improvement. Um, but I think, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to 2024 because I actually think we do start at step four more commonly. Um, so rather than dealing with all the objections we just mentioned around, oh, we're survey fatigued, we, you know, leaders are concerned about what they're going to find and what controls we're going to need to put in place. Go, well, all right, well, before we consult with staff on that, we've actually consulted with staff on other things related to their experience of work through the engagement survey and whatnot. We've got data, we've got controls, let's now evaluate that. And then when we go into our next round of consultation, we've got some very much more targeted questions they're asking people and we're looking for specific sorts of controls to address the gaps that we've identified. So I'm, I'm real, as you can tell, I'm really excited about 2024 to do more of that sort of work. I'm excited for my uh, few weeks off over the Christmas break before we start <laughs> doing any of that work. Yeah, and I think that's really leveraging the strengths of our team, right? So having Definitely. people who've got really good, strong organisational psychology backgrounds, it's not something that a wellness practitioner would be able to do so well. Um, so we're going to leverage the strengths of our team. So like you said, it's not easy work. Um, it's, it's tough work. It does require a lot of subject matter expertise. And that's why we'll continue to obviously employ people from the org site profession um, because they've got generally um, a good skill set in that area. Um, but that'll be fun. Um, so, yeah, actually, if you're dealing with any of those objections yourself, right, survey fatigue, can we just use our engagement survey, fear of rattlesnakes, concerns from leadership about like, how much work you're going to have to do on controls, um, starting on step four is not a bad way to, to go. And we might even do a webinar, I'm thinking, at the beginning of next year just to talk through about what does that actually look like um, as, a, as, as a strategy. Um, well, Joelle, um, I'm thinking that's probably enough for today. Um, it's, I think so too. It's getting towards the end of the year and so we're just phoning it in now at this point. So um, <laughs> The end of the day, the end of the year. <laughs> so um it's been yeah it's been great joel um i guess hosting with you over the last year uh really thank you for keeping me in line um and for all the effort that you put in into finding all the awesome juicy clips uh that we put on linkedin um and uh yeah looking forward to 2024 doing more of these podcasts with you and building the community even further thank you jason i would like to uh, thank our listeners for um keeping us going with these recordings as well um, if we didn't have people listening every week, we wouldn't uh, probably carry on. Well, we might, but <laughs> <laughs> guests might be less inclined to join us if we didn't have <laughs> listeners who were interested in uh, hearing what they had to say. So, um, yeah, it's it's really a wonderful community that we've uh, that we've built with this podcast, and it continues to grow, which is um, fantastic and probably much bigger than either of us expected when we started out. That's right. And yeah, and thanks to our guests, right, who have come of on course. the podcast as well and given us their, their time and subject matter expertise. Hopefully we've given yep. them a, a good platform, right, to share their ideas. And um, I think in, in many ways, every academic, and I did bring this up with Tony LaMontagne when he said he had a new article. I'm like, hey, more people are going to find out about that article if you talk about it on our podcast <laughs> for 10 minutes and putting it behind a paywall somewhere. Um, yeah. So I think it's a good way to distribute really good information. And I'm, I'm really 
pleased with the caliber of people that we have on the podcast. And um, yeah, really looking forward to June of, of next year when we have our conference, right? And bringing them all together, uh, all of these great people, many or many of, I should say, that have been on our podcast over the last few years. Um, and it should be a really great community event as well to see people in person, given I've just had a few days of that at the World Congress. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, the next opportunity. Yes, it's very exciting. Awesome. Well, uh, listeners, that brings us to the end of our final episode for 2023. We really appreciate you being on this journey with us and, um, you know, joining in with us uh, when you can. Um, do reach out if there's anything in particular um, that you think we should be covering in, in 2024 or if there's any particular guests that you'd love to have on the podcast, particularly if you can make an introduction to those guests, uh, that would be much appreciated as we're always looking for, for good people to feature. Um, we do record these over video, um, same as today. Uh, you'll be able to see Joelle's awesome background with some mm. uh, Star Wars paraphernalia and whatnot. Um, if you check out the video, we do put clips on and, and we'll put a couple of clips on, no doubt, from this episode on the Flourish DX LinkedIn page as well. As always, reach out to myself or Joelle or the, any of the, the rest of the team uh, if you're interested in continuing the conversation over LinkedIn. Uh, but thanks again, everyone, for an uh, awesome 2023. And we'll see you January 16th for our first episode of 2024. Cheers. You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. To stay up to date with the latest on psychological injury prevention, follow Flourish DX on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast at www.psychhealthandsafety.com.